This morning, I'm excited to share with the church the depths of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I, when I was in seminary, I had to take a course entitled Trinitarianism 101. And at first, I was a little bit frustrated because I thought, why do I have to take a three-hour course for a whole semester and pay like $1,000 to take a class that I already know the answer to? <laughs> God is one in three persons, right? I knew the answer already. So I tried to clip out of it. They wouldn't let me. And I learned real quickly on the first day how little I knew about the Trinity. Dr. Scott Harrell, the systematic theology professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, handed each student as they walked through the door a binder that I swear has to be the thickest binder Office Depot sells. That thing was full of notes, and I quickly learned that the doctrine of the Trinity is ginormous. It is huge. In fact, everything that we know about everything comes from what we know about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's just huge. I like what our early church father, St. Augustine, said about the Trinity. He said, if you deny the Trinity, you shall lose your soul. And if you try to explain the Trinity, you shall lose your mind. <laughs> it was a very, very difficult course. But I owe a tremendous amount of gratitude to Dr. Scott Harrell because that class changed my life. It changed the way I see God, and it also changes the way that I see myself. And particularly because I was going to school to be trained to be a pastor, it also changed the way I saw the nature of my work and the nature of the church. In fact, this morning's message is essentially taken right out of a paper that Dr. Scott Harrell published entitled, The Self-Giving Triune God, The Imago Dei, and the Nature of the Local Church an ontology of mission. If you're interested at all in today's message, just Google any one of those words, and I'm pretty sure you'll find that paper. If not, you can ask me for it. And so I've divided up this sermon into three points. It's a three-point sermon. And, the first po and each point is actually a Latin term. Uh, the, the first term is um, uh, Gloria Dei. The second term is Imago Dei. And excuse me, I'm from Texas, so sometimes I put an E at the end of that. Gloria Dei. And the second term is Imago Dei. And the third term is Missio Dei. And, and here's the way the structure of this message is going to go, because I want you to hang with me, all right? Hang with me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come way back here, get as far away from you as possible, and talk about the Gloria Dei, which basically means the glory of God. And we're going to ask ourselves three questions. One, what is the meaning and the nature of God? And then two, we're going to ask ourselves, who is God internally? What is he like inside of himself? Is he a selfish, judgmental, angry God, or is he selfish, loving, and kind? And then three, we're going to ask, is he the same externally as he is internally? In other words, does he act the way he is on the inside? And then we're going to talk about the Imago Dei, and I'm going to move up closer. We're going to talk about what it means to be a human made in the image of God. Imago Dei means image of God. And we're going to ask the same three questions. What is the meaning and the nature of a person? What does it mean to be human? And then secondly, who are we internally? Are we selfish or are we selfless? And then finally, well, who are we externally? How does our internal nature reflect our external nature? 
And then, lastly, thirdly, we're going to talk about the missio day, which literally means the mission of God. And I'm going to come down here and talk to the church on the church floor. It's about us. We're going to ask ourselves the same three questions. What is the meaning and the nature of the church? And who is the church or what is the church internally? Who are we on the inside? And then, finally, who are we on the outside? Who do we, how do we express the self, I mean, the, 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 the Trinitarian nature of God? Are you, did that make sense? Now, first we're going to talk about the glory day. Gloria day means the glory of God. I think perhaps the most famous line in the Westminster Confession is the question, what is the chief end of man? And the responsive answer is, church, do you know? Yeah, that was, I'm sure the Lord was glorified in that. <laughs> what is the chief end of man? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Father. <laughs> That's right. The answer is to glorify God. And unfortunately, we often forget the last part, which is, I think, the most important part, and to enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith. Does that mean that God is selfish? I mean, if God created everything in the world in order to give glory to himself, if he created us humans to give him glory, does that mean that he is selfish? Um, French philosopher um, um, Sartre said that if there is a God, the purpose of the universe would be to glorify him. And if everything that he created was made to give him glory, it seems then that he created something in order to receive glory for himself. Corinthians says, true love does not seek his own. And it would suggest almost that God creates something to seek his own. He creates man and says, you will glorify me. Is God selfish? Maybe this question makes you uncomfortable. Perhaps you've never asked yourself this question. But can I say this is a very important question. We must answer this question correctly. This is the question that's at the heart and the center of every thinking person's mind. If they're trying to figure out who God is and whether or not they want to worship that God, they want to know how can God not be selfish. For instance, Pablo Picasso and Mark Twain and, and, and many others said that God is the paradigm of selfishness. Um, uh, utilitarian philosopher John Stuart Mill said that God does every day that for which he regularly condemns man. Speaking specifically about his arrogance and his pride and his selfishness. Is God selfish? Interesting, I had the privilege of sharing this message with our high school students about a month ago. And one of the girls, she's a senior, she got real excited and raised her hand and says, this is almost crazy. I was just having this conversation with a friend at school today. I was trying to share the gospel with her, and she said she refused to believe in God because he is selfish. This is just what our world thinks about God. And, and they get that from a false understanding of the Bible. We must answer this question. Well, God is God, and that is that. Who are you, old man, you stupid piece of clay, to respond to God? Is that, maybe that's your answer. Maybe that would be the answer you would give to someone who was questioning the nature of God. Maybe that's the answer you've given yourself, and that's just good enough. But can I just tell you it's not good enough? That would be the answer the Muslim gives to defend Allah. That's who he is. Deal with it. But it cannot be the answer that the Christian gives to defend Yahweh. Dr. Harrell said this, if God were only one person 
it would be difficult to avoid the conclusion that in some sense, while we are not to be selfish, God himself is absolutely selfish. Now, if you listen to what Harrell said is, if God were one person, then he would be selfish. And that's why the doctrine of the Trinity is extremely important. Because God is three, he is not selfish. The doctrine of the Trinity is the historical, orthodox doctrine of the church. We believe that God is three persons in one Godhead, and each one of those persons are equally God. Here's a, here's a brief dis- de- definition of the Trinity. There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. Uh, sometimes the Trinity is symbolized by, um, this, by different symbols. Uh, one of the most popular ones is the three intersecting circles. You'll see these three circles are intersecting one another so that they're each individual circles, Father, Son, Spirit, but they're intersecting one another to say that they're one. They're inside of one another. Um, within the center of those three intersecting circles, you see kind of a flower. That's called a trefoil. That's also a historic picture of what the Trinity looks like. And within that, we also get the, um, the fleur-de-lis. This is a very popular uh, symbol in our city. It's actually a Trinitarian symbol. And sometimes you'll see this trefoil put into the form of like a Celtic knot. It, it, the point of all of these symbols is just to express to us that God is three persons, but they're tightly interwoven and interconnected as one God. If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 14. We'll look at verse 19. I'm sorry, we'll look at verse 9 through 11. John chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. Jesus says, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show me the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. This word in is a very teeny tiny word, but it's extremely significant. There's a very organic thing happening here. Jesus is saying, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And he says that like two or three different times. This isn't, this isn't like a spiritualized thing. This is literal. God the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in God. The, um, the theologians would use this, this, this organic thing, this inness, and they'd call it perichoresis. This is an important term. I want, I want us all to, to really hang on to this term. Perichoresis. It comes from the Greek word peri and then koron. Peri means around. It's where we get the word Period of time is a time that goes around. Per, um, perimeter, your peripheral vision. I think a ballerina would do like a, a para, para something. Parouette. Uh, then chorusis means um, containing in. So the holy, the the means God is around all of them, and yet they're all in contained with one another. The the the, the classic definition, the, the complex definition, is this: mutual interpenetration and indwelling within the threefold nature of the Trinity. God is in the Son. 
The Son is in the Father, and the Son and, and, and is in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in them both. It's this interpenetration and mutual unity within the Godhead. It's very, very interesting. You see, it's the exact opposite of selfishness. God could never be selfish because he's selfless in his very nature. If God the Father stopped loving the Son and stopped indwelling the Son and stopped giving glory to the Son and he sought his own glory, it no longer would be God. And I don't know what would happen to us. They each love each other in perfect harmony and perfect unity. God the Father loves the Son. In fact, he, he practically dotes upon the Son. The whole Old Testament is basically a picture of God the Father pulling out his wallet and showing us pictures of Jesus. He's saying, look, this is what he looks like. This is what he's going to look like. When you, I just can't wait for you to see him. It's my boy. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, he does the same thing. He basically says, I'm here to glorify the Father. It's all about dad, you know. Dad is awesome. And the dad's like, no, it's you. And the son is like, no, it's you. I love you. No, I love you more. And then the Spirit shows up on the scene, and he does the same thing. In the book of Acts, all the way through, the Spirit bears testimony of who God is and who Jesus is. He's given glory to the Father and glory to the Son. The Trinity is full of this interconnected, interpersonal, mutual love of one another. It's the complete opposite of selfishness. Now, if that is who God is inside of himself, if he's got this love relationship happening inside of here, who is God outside of himself? Who does God reveal himself to be to us? God's internal nature, is it the same as his external nature? God's external nature is the same. He wants to give to us. He's a self-giving God. He gives glory to the Son, glory to the Spirit, and then the three of them together say, let's give glory to people. Let's give grace to people. Let's create a creation where we can give to people. It is out of the Godhead's personal relatedness that all else flows. The creation of angels, man in the image of God, and the great plan of redemption. All of it is in order that finite beings might enter into the joyous fellowship of the Holy Trinity. God is a giver. Put it another way, creation and salvation begin and end with God's self-givingness, both internally as he gives to the Trinity and externally as he gives to creation. This is just extraordinary. So if that is who God is, then that leads us perfectly to who we are. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? As a human being, we must know, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Or specifically, what does it mean to be created in the image of a triune God? We get our definition from who God is, essentially. How can we determine what it means to be a person until we understood what it means that God is three persons? If God has this perichoresis, this intimately contained love for one another, if he's a relational, social being who gives, shouldn't it therefore also be true that if we were created in his image, we would be relational, social beings who give? It would be cruel for God to create us if he's a loving God and enjoying a fellowship of love within the triune God. It'd be cruel for him to create us without the capacity to love or to give, wouldn't it? In fact, I think the testimony of creation bears witness to that fact. Everything that God created was good, but one thing. It was not good for man to be alone. 
So what does it mean to be human? It means to be in a relationship. And it means to be reflecting the triune nature of God. We, in our sense, are our own trinity. This is complicated. Bear with me, if you will. I'm a human being, and I have a relationship with God in heaven, right? I have a relationship with him. But I also have a horizontal relationship with my spouse or with my neighbor. So every human being has a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship. If you'll notice, I kind of look like a triangle, a very round triangle. (laughs) We each have a Trinitarian nature. I love God, and I love others. If I do not have a horizontal relationship, then essentially I'm a selfish being, and I cannot reflect the self-giving nature of the triune God. And if I don't have a relationship, a vertical relationship with God, but I do have a horizontal relationship with others, you and I both know that eventually that relationship becomes completely selfish, and I cannot reflect the self-giving nature of God. Humanity gets its definition from who God is. Look at me, if you will, at John chapter 14. We'll skip on down to verse 15. Verses 15 through 20. And listen to what Jesus says. This should freak you out a bit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. But listen to this. And he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will see me no longer. But then you will see me because I live. You will live also. And in that day, you will know, this is awesome, that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Human beings have this privilege of being able to share in the perichoresis. We get to have an intimate, mutual interpenetration and indwelling with our triune God. He's in us. That's not spiritual. That's organic. He's in I tried to think of an illustration for this, and then it occurred to me that the best illustration is found in Scripture. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul use it. It's the illustration between a man and a woman, right? When a man and a woman get married, they become one flesh, the Bible teaches. So here we got two distinct persons become one flesh. Like we have three distinct persons who are one God. The the nature of a human marriage is two distinct persons who become one flesh. And then each of those persons are indwelt or possessed by God. Our early church fathers actually called it divinization. Kind of like demonization. We're possessed by the divine. We're possessed by God. And so God is in me, and God is in my wife, and she and I are experiencing this mutual mutual interpenetration and indwelling with one another. Uh Uh-oh, where are you going, Mike? (laughs) There's kids in the room. (laughs) That's amazing. When I proposed to Kelly, we went on a horse ranch, and I took her on a picnic, and I pulled out my guitar, and I had one of my high school youth hiding in the bushes taking pictures of us the whole time. And I played the guitar, and I sang her this song. Um, the song was written by Wes King. It's called Another Man. And the gist of the song is this. I'm in love with Kelly, but she's in love with another man. And she always talks about this other man, and her love for him is so deep. And I also learned that this other man, his love for her is stronger than my love for her. His love, his love for her is better than my love for her. And this is bad news if you're about to propose to a woman. But quickly we learn in this song that the other man is Jesus. 
Now, I never got to finish that song. Every time I sang it, I cried. Even if I could cry now, if I had to sing it for you. But I did have the privilege. The Lord gave me the opportunity to sing that, surprise, it, surprise her and sing it at our wedding. And I got through it. And I got to that next part that says, this man, this other man, it's Jesus. And he holds both of our hands. And he makes our love complete. Man, the human the human creation that God gave us is just amazing. We have this beautiful picture of the Trinity. And not only that, but God gives us redemption. God gives us life. God gives us the ability to create life. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but God in his self-giving nature loves himself, right? And then, and then he gives so that we can have something, and he gives us the ability to do the same thing. We can love each other. My wife and I can love each other, but then we can create life. And then all of a sudden, that life that we've created just becomes the center of our universe, right? Everything that we have is given to those two boys. And it's just amazing that God says, here's who I am, and I'm going to give and create you, and now this is who you are, and you're going to be able to give and create little ones who you're going to love. That's just awesome. So if that's who we are on the inside, how should our external nature be? By the way, this was just an illustration. Single humans share in the self-giving nature of God, too. It's just an illustration. Um, Jesus was single. In fact, he was the most awesomest, the pinnacle of all mankind, right? He's the one who showed us what it means to be a self-giving human. He gave himself. He died so that we might be saved. So, and then Jesus, it's almost impossible to count how often Jesus says, love and give, Right? If you want to save your life, you need to give it, lose it. If you want to um, honor me, you need to love yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. So see, there's this internal nature and an external nature. It's better to receive than to give. I'm just kidding. He said, it's better to give than to receive. It's better to serve than to be served. So we've been created in God's image to be selfless. Can I ask a question? Is it possible for us who have been created in the image of the selfless God to be selfish? Is, is, it, is it possible for us who've been created in the image of a selfless God and who are possessed as Christians by the image of a selfless God, by the selfless God himself, is it possible for us to be selfish? I would submit, absolutely, it is. I have studied and sought across the globe, and I have found many a selfish man and many a selfish Christian. In fact, I am a specimen. What happens when a man becomes selfish? Have you ever read the book The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? If you've never read the book, then you can't be a Christian. You have to read the book The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. I've read it about three times. I still barely understand it, but it's a wonderful book. C.S. Lewis is an amazing writer. It's a novel. It's fictional, and it starts at a bus stop in hell. And the author boards the bus, and he tells us what hell looks like. Hell is gray. Hell has no color. Hell is dark and dreary, and hell is full of citizens of hell. And all of those citizens are gray with no color. In fact, they're actually light. They have no weight, almost like a ghost, he says. And these citizens get on the bus, and he hears them talking to one another, and they kind of look like people from New York or something. They're just mean, you know? I've never been to New York, but I hear they're mean on buses. 
these people are mean. I mean, one guy knows everything there is to know about everything, art, culture, politics, and you can't tell him otherwise. He's right, and you better shut it. Another lady, she's just in there. She's just nagging and complaining about everything. I understand. Another guy, he's in there just addicted to himself, and he's talking to himself, and he's talking about himself, and he's looking at his hair. And Lewis basically says, fictionally, hell is not a place of torment rather than a place in which you get everything you've ever wanted. You want to be right? You get to be right for eternity. Lucky you. <laughs> you want to criticize and complain? Complain forever. They're going to love this place. You want to self-indulge in your own addictions? Then go for it. You've got eternity to get drunk. And then the bus miraculously goes out of heaven and goes to he- goes out of hell and goes to heaven it approaches the foothills of the mountain of god and this place is gorgeous bright colorful radiant the grass is green so green i can't wait for green grass you know what i mean the green the grass is green and it's tall and the people when they get off the bus they can't even stand on it it hurts them because they have no weight And then Lewis contrasts the people of heaven, the citizens of heaven. He calls them solid people. They're people of weight. They can stand on the grass. They're people of color. They're radiant. But the people of hell have no color, and they have no weight. So essentially, selfishness makes you less human, and selflessness makes you more human. See, I think that as Christians, we kind of, maybe you don't, but I do, sometimes mess this up. I think because of the doctrine of total depravity, we tend to think that our trick, our job is to get rid of the human and, like, and somehow become like this holy little deity. Like we need to just abnegate the body, beat the flesh, and become a spirit. But that's not the trick. The trick is not to become less human. The trick is to become more human. God created us as humans before the fall. And we'll always be humans even after our glorified body. Jesus was the ultimate human. The trick is not to become less human. The trick is to become more like Jesus. And sometimes I think the world sees us not as the solid people who are bright with glitter and glamour all over us and showing showing forth our self-givenness, but we look more like the people on the bus. We're complaining. We're right about everything. We're grumbling. We're hate-blogging. Amen? Listen to what um, Harrell says. I love this quote. He says, The world has a caricature of the Christian. For many a secular observer, the believer is a human disaster. To become a Christian is to abnegate life. No more laughter. No more days of ruckus shouting around a football game at a cavern with a good beer. The gusto is gone. The Christian convert has died. Too often we need to admit that this caricature is true. Many Christians have died, not just to sin, which is right, but somehow they've also died to their own humanity, which is wrong. Some have been bound by guilt and legalism. As believers, we can become forced, defensive, angry, afraid, isolated, morose, mechanical, and even spiritually artificial. But... If our God is truly a three persons in an infinitely meaningful relationship, then those who are redeemed and brought into relationship with this God have every reason to be the most fulfilled and authentic of all the human race. 
Indeed, the Christian's humanity should luster and glow. Our personhood should radiate because we are in loving relationship with the fount of all life. Christians should be the most powerful, the most sensitive, the most transparent, and truly human of all other people upon the earth. That's good. My hope in sharing a quote like that would not be to discourage us, but to encourage us to do as Jesus said and live life to the fullest. Be colorful. Let's give as, Jesus, as God gave, the triune God gave. Don't be like one of my favorite musicians says, don't be dead before you die. Let's live. And let's reflect the glory of God. Amen? If we can't do that individually, then how can we expect to do that corporately as a church? Because essentially the Missio Dei is the corporate or the gathering of a bunch of Imago Days. So now we've got to ask three more questions. What is the meaning and the nature of the church? What are we internally and what are we externally? Missio Dei is a Latin term which means the mission of God or literally the sending of God. I'm going to come down here on the floor with my church. We're going to talk about what it means to be a church. We're going to let, your hair, we're going to let our hair down, you know? That's cruel cliche, by the way. <clears throat> what does it mean to be the church? Theologians will tell us that God is a missionary God. He's a sending God. The Old Testament is replete with examples. He sent Adam. He sent Noah. He sent Abraham. He sent Israel. He sent Jesus, his only son. And then he sent the Spirit, and then he sent the church to go into all the ends of the earth until there's no need to send anymore. That is the Missio Dei. God is a missionary God. And so let's look at John chapter 20 just to finish this, um, this dialogue from Jesus in the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verses 21 through 22 says this. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you read Acts 1.8, it's a very similar story. He says, Wait for the Holy Spirit, and when he comes upon you in power, you will go and be my witnesses to all the ends of the earth. So I am sending the Spirit to come inside of you in order to send you to all the ends of the of the earth. So you see, the church doesn't exist in order to do missions. The church exists because God is missions. God is mission. God is the missionary. God it is not the church that has a mission of salvation to fulfill in the world. It is the mission of the Son and the Spirit through the Father that includes the church. I think that we need to start thinking correctly about mission. We need to understand that God is a missionary God. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as an institution that does stuff. You know what I mean? We do children's ministry. We do adult ministry. We do outreach, you know, food pantry type stuff, sharing shed. We do evangelism if you want to take it to the streets. We do missions when we go overseas. That's, we need to stop thinking like that, and we need to stop, start thinking correctly. The church is the missio day. We reflect the image of who God is, and God is ascending missionary God. What is the meaning and the nature of the church? It is to reflect 
the Trinity. It is to give glory to God by reflecting who he is. Um, the God-given identity of the church. So just as human beings find their identity of what it means to be a person by knowing who the three-person nature of the Trinity is, the church finds her identity by knowing who the Trinity is. The, this order of priority is foundational. This is a quote from Wilbert Schenck um, in Changing Frontiers of Missions. He says, this order of priority is foundational. That's a very theological, systematical theological term, the order of priority. And the order of priority is this. God sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. The Spirit sent the church. That is what the church does, goes, because God is mission. The Holy Trinity is the archetype of the local church and mission. God has structured, this is great, God has structured the local body of Christians in such a way that in order to be fulfilled, it too must collectively give of itself. So just as a human being has a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship, horizontal? Horizontal relationship, we give to God, we worship God, we love God, we have a relationship with God, but we also have a relationship with one another. The church has the same thing. Christ is our head, and we are the body, and we must have a horizontal relationship to the body, and if we don't have one of those things, then we will become frustrated will become less like the church, just as a man will become less like a man if he doesn't share and give. So what is the perichoresis in regards to the church? We've talked about perichoresis in, in regards to the Trinity, right? God the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves them both. They're constantly loving one another, giving one another the glory, sharing one another all of this love. And, and then all of a sudden, they don't keep that to themselves, right? They don't say, hey, look, this is fun. They say, no, let's, let's give it and create. And human beings do the same thing, right? We have this interconnected love between ourselves, and we must love ourselves, but we also must love our neighbors, and we must give it. And the church has this interconnected between itself, and it must love itself, but it also must go and give it to others. This love that we're talking about of ourselves is called koinonia. Tell me amen if you know what koinonia means. I've been beating this like a dead horse for the past six months, right? Koinonia means sharing. It means participation. It means fellowship. It is the Greek word in Scripture used for communion. When we come to the table of the Lord, we are sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. It also is the Greek word for sharing in the sufferings of Christ, our missions theme this year. We are sharing in the, in the sufferings of Jesus. It also means fellowship with one another. If we are a body, we must fellowship with one another. We have to share in each other's sufferings, and we have to share in each other's mission to the world. We're a family that loves one another. If Jesus is our head and we are the body, we have to operate together as a body in unity. Can I just suggest sometimes we don't do this as well as we should because we're selfish, <laughs> humans. But then we also must spread that. Do you like that? We must spread that to the world. So how, if this is who we are internally, then what does that mean about us externally? How do we do that? Can I ask the same question I asked earlier? Is it possible for the church to be selfish? L let me ask it this way. If the church is a corporate gathering of image-bearing humans who are possessed by the self-giving God, and if the church is also having Christ as its head, and we are ambassadors of a self-giving God, is it possible for us to be selfish? 
or again, if we are ambassadors of the selfless Christ and Christ is our head and he is the model of what it means to be self-giving because he gave of himself his own life in order that we might be redeemed and purchased as his bride, the church, is it possible for us to be selfish? And I would submit, absolutely. I think that there are a lot of selfish local churches in the world. I know that there are a lot of selfish churches in the world. It's made up of a bunch of selfish people. Listen to what Harrell says about this, and I'm almost finished here. Just as an individual Christian focused upon himself becomes less like Christ and so less human, so a local church, when it becomes centered on its own well-being, will become a hollow shell of what it is intended to be. Too often, churches have become content to orientate nearly everything to their own members. Programs, finances, even prayer seem to concentrate repeatedly upon themselves. Their own preferences, their own patterns, and their own goals. Not that members of the church should not nurture and care for one another. That is what koinonia is. But the local church cannot remain absorbed in itself just as the person of the Trinity did not confine themselves to loving themselves, but rather created the world and entered redemptively into our existence. So the local church is called to give of itself to an alienated world. So with the church, we have a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship, but that relationship must also go into the world and change the world. And if we don't do those three things, then we're not the church. So what's, what's, what's an illustration? Like we use marriage as an illustration for the Imago Day. What would be an illustration for the Missio Day? Well, I'm going to share one. This is one that I'm passionate about. I believe that church planting is a very powerful example of a church giving of itself sacrificially. I mean, in order to plant a church, several, maybe 10 families must leave the church. And most of the time, to be honest, those are the best families, right? The ones who really serve a lot and are really willing to go. The church must sacrifice by giving those two, 10 families. And then those families will go into a place that there is no church or a place in which a certain demographic or certain context is not being reached. And that church will reach that demographic. That's self-giving. In fact, statistics show that when a church does that, a new church will reach more people for Christ than an old church because an old church, in fact, is concerned mostly with its internal nature. A new church has no internal nature. It must be concerned with its external nature by giving and serving and loving and making people disciples. Um, Scott Harrell says, while appearing to lose its most devout members, the local church that imitates the Godhead in sacrificial love for the world is the one which multiplies. So, in many ways, um, when a church does that, when a church gives of itself in order to multiply churches across the country, it actually doesn't lose members. I was talking to one church planter just this week. He said, our church took 100 members to plant a church downtown St. Louis, and the next Sunday, our mother church had the same amount of people that it had the Sunday before. 100 people just showed up. It seems to be the economy of God. When we give, he blesses back. I also am a firm believer, and I've been trained in saturation church planting, which means the church is always planting, always thinking, where's the next plant going to be? I was driving down the road last night, and I saw this dark alley. That alley needs a church. Who's going to go? 
We're constantly training and thinking about who are we going to send because we're participating in the sending nature of our Missio Day. Now, that's just one example. That's an example that I'm personally passionate about. But what are you passionate about? I mean, that's why I'm here on the floor, right, so we can talk. I mean, we really need to have this discussion, I think. How can the church express the self-giving nature of God, and how can the church arm itself against being selfish? How can we affect this community so much that if we weren't here, the community would sense it and be sad? These are the questions I think that we really need to wrestle with because of the doctrine of the Trinity. The church must have this threefold nature. Christ, he's our, he's our head, community, we're the church, and mission. We must be sending and going into the world. If not, we are not the church. And so this morning, I'd like just to conclude with a summary of all that we've learned this morning about the doctrine of the Trinity. First, we've learned that the Trinity is who God is. The nature and the meaning of God is that he is three persons who are intimately in love with one another and giving glory back to one another. Then we learn that his internal nature is love, so therefore his external nature is evident by the fact that he gives life, he gives grace, and he gives redemption. Then we also learn, secondly, about the nature of man. The Imago Day. We've talked about what is the meaning of man? What does it mean to be human? And we've learned that it means to love. We must be involved in an intimate, perichoristic relationship with both God and others, and we must give or else we're selfish, not reflecting the selfless nature of God. And then finally, we learned about the Missio Day. What is the nature and meaning of the church? And the church is a reflection of who God is, which is ascending church. We learn that our internal nature is to love. We must have koinonia fellowship. We must truly love one another. And as that love swells, it must turn back and give to the world. Just as a human being is selfish, becomes less human, a church who is selfish, well, isn't a church. Selfishness robs a human from being humane. And selfishness hinders a church from being the church. Father God in heaven, you are an amazing and uncomprehensible God. We just want to glorify and worship your name because you are so holy and so awesome and so ginormous. Our little brains can barely take it in. And you are love. You are so Loving that you have given us the same nature that you have to love our spouses, to love our children, to love our church, and to love the world. I pray this morning that this truth, this doctrinal truth, which comes from your word, would teach us how to be more like Christ. That as humans, we would become more like Christ and that we would give of ourselves. I pray for myself, Lord, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a, a better dad. I'm learning that I'm not as good of a dad as I thought I would always be. I want to be a good dad, and I want to be a good, good human. I want to show love to people I don't know. But I also pray, Lord, for our church. I pray, Lord, that we may honestly and accurately reflect the self-giving nature of our triune God, that we would love one another in this room, and that our love would swell to give to the world, that we would go to all the ends of the earth, that we would be on mission, that we would reflect the Missio Dei. And I ask these things not for our glory, 
but to give all the glory to the one who created us for his own glory. Might we glorify the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.